Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Aga Brozinska. Dr. Aga is a Assistant Professor of Human Development and Family Studies at Colorado State University. She is a neuroscientist and psychologist who studies the mechanisms of decline, maintenance, and plasticity of cognition, function, and brain structure during adults in their lifespan. Aga, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. My pleasure. Hello. Sure. So can you just explain to the listeners how to say your, your name properly? Because uh, I brutalized it a little bit there. No, you did a great job. So my name is Aga Burzyńska. Okay, thank you. And originally from Poland. Poland, I believe. Yeah. Yes. So the reason I've got you on the episode today is because I read an article that uh, featured you, your studies, and it was to do with a Masters athlete, um, Olga. And um, we'll, we'll talk about her in, um, in a bit and your research with that. But I'm I'm interested. How did you how did you end up in the field of wanting to study brain structure and movement? Uh, so honestly, um, I think it was climbing that got me into it. Uh, I took up some rock climbing as a graduate student back in Berlin, um, and I just realized how kind of powerful experience it is uh, on. On my motivation and on my general, I don't know, attention. And I just realized that studying only aging brain is not enough for me. So I was looking for ways to combine it with sports. And honestly, I Googled um, brain aging and neuroscience and I found the name of Arthur Kramer in Illinois, um, who pioneered the research linking exercise to the brain. And and I just contacted him, and I ended up working with him. It's it's always the case of a personal interest in yourself, either to fix something or just because that's your hobby ends up being a, a career. And I'm so glad you did it because of that research you're, you're bringing out about it. And I must say, also working with uh, people like Art, who is very you know he's a f- climber. It's also very dynamic type of work so there is something to it i think people who engage a lot with activities they tend to push harder and i like it <laughs> uh-huh. yeah and uh, i i want to get into the climbing aspect because wow climbing as a sport is intense uh i i've I, I don't do it myself but i've tried a little bit and i know just that dexterity with your fingers your grip strength your ability to even a fear, like you get into the psychology of fear and you're hanging on the side of a rock or a wall and there's so many elements to climbing that uh, really taxes you mentally and physically. That's why I'm not the best climber because I get afraid a lot, but I love doing it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's it was a good challenge to keep pushing yourself there. So, um, so can we, I guess a good starting point then is looking at that piece, that article that I read about with you that got me so interested was your um, – when you were part of the research team looking at a master's athlete, unfortunately she's, she's passed now, but um, it was uh, Olga Kotelko. Yeah. Olga Kotelko. Olga Mm -hmm. Kotelko. And she was a Canadian master's athlete, was she? Yes. Yeah. And so Olga from just as a synopsis of the article that I read was um, 
or still competing at the Masters Games at the age of 94, 95, was it? Right. So she was basically, from what I know, uh, from also like her family, that she was competing until she was preparing for competitions, basically until she passed away. Yeah. So that was amazing. Yeah. Just to get just to see someone in their 90s who's competitive at sports. Yeah. And and Olga's story is special because she did not do any competitive sports before she retired. Actually, she only started in her 70s. So that's double motivating that yeah. one can start later and still be, you know, it's not only about success, it's about doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a great point because I did read that where, I think that can, that's inspiring for a lot of listeners who, who think, oh, I haven't been sporty my whole life, so I might as well never start. But Olga is a prime case of saying she started in her seventies and she, and she's, and there were benefits to her brain even from starting in her seventies. Right. Although honestly, this was a one time measurement study, so we can't, really conclude that these were benefits because of her training, because we don't have any earlier measurement from before she started training. But the results we obtained point to a mixture of successful aging. So she was lucky. She didn't have any major disease that would, let's say, keep her in a hospital or require medication, such as diabetes and so on, which can also have negative impact on the aging brain. Um, But also, we believe that some of features of her brain that we observed were too good to be just a result of being lucky and aging successfully. But honestly, I must say it is partly speculation because to really know how um, exercise affected um, her aging, we would have to have at least one more measurement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just want to be careful here. No, sure. Yeah, this is all, um, uh, there, are, there are limitations, of, of course. Um, so would you have um would you be able to give us an idea of how our brain ages so you've got a teenager and they're a little bit sporty at school and then they get into their 20s and hopefully they carry on some sort of activity but if we look at what happens a lot in the general population they they give up sport after school and they just get into the work life and and the desk like what happens to the brain matter in that case is there um because I'm going to compare that that situation versus someone who sort of maintains sport through life. Well, honestly, we do not have uh, longitudinal studies. It's a, actually a very interesting idea to follow people who do sports and who keep doing them and people who stop doing them. Uh, we just mainly have like cross-sectional data to know how the brain changes over the lifespan. Um, so I cannot clearly answer the question what happens in people who continue doing sports in the younger age and people who do not uh, because it's as you can imagine it's a years of acquiring mm-hmm. brain data uh, and I'm not aware of a study that that, that exists like this okay. but I can maybe tell um, the listeners a bit about what happens as we grow older that would um, be perfect thank you so there are different aspects of our brain. They kind of develop with slightly different trajectories, but roughly the peak of brain development is somewhere how in the um, early 20s to 30s. There's still some mixed opinions on this uh, because we have, you know, the gray matter, which is the mainly the cortex and some of the nuclei. Uh, 
in the center of our brain, which is basically uh, brain cells. This is where the cell bodies, so the neurons sit, and where the inform information processing takes place. But we also have the white matter, so where the fibers, you know, the projections of the neurons uh, form those interconnections uh, so that our brain can act as a computer. So all of those parts of the brain, they are susceptible to aging and different brain parts age slightly differently. But in a way, a general um, thing that happens to our brain is that it tends to shrink with, uh, with age. So um, basically, our brain becomes a bit smaller. So there is more space between the skull and our brain. And also those spaces inside of the brain called ventricles, they become larger. Um, what also often appears are so-called white matter hyperintensities. In a certain type of brain scans, we see those like whitish dots that in young people, they would perhaps mean multiple sclerosis, but we are used to seeing them in older people. And they may be a reason, um, I mean, the origin may be related to especially hypertension. So definitely smoking is not good for our brain or anything or untreated hypertension. But sometimes we also see them and not um, hypertensive old adults. And then we could go deeper into, um, you know, brain function or this type of diffusion imaging that we did in those studies where we really look into the microstructures of the quality of the fibers. And we also know that this quality deteriorates with age. Okay. And a lot of people I talked to, they made very similar and anal uh, interesting analogy, like that the brain connections can be seen like highways that, you know, get older, they are more bumps, so the communication gets a bit less reliable and there are delays. Mm -hmm. So that's you know, basically what can happen, even in a healthy aging. So no dementia, no symptoms of, you know, severe memory loss. Okay, so awaits us uh, in the sixth decade and later. So I, th I, I love knowing that. So you're saying, um, yeah, that our brain is still developing even through into our late twenties, potentially into the thirties. There. Yes. Yeah, so there, there are studies uh, showing, you know, that there are different ways to estimate this brain development it depends what we take so for example brain volume peaks earlier in life but when it comes to um as so we can call it myelination so the um, kind of iso the, the, the isolation of the cables in our brain mm -hmm. uh, some in some regions it's known to actually peak even in the 30s but you know that's why we do a lot of research because it depends sometimes on the measure sometimes on a sample so we we still keep gathering the data, but um, I know that there's some evidence that some brain regions kind of keep developing until the 30s. So mm -hmm. this also means that we should not, in a way, give up healthy behaviors uh, that that we keep usually, you know, as teenagers, right? You're supposed to sleep a lot, eat well, don't drink much. Maybe it's good to keep keeping it into later adulthood mm -hmm. and and that's again why i've got you on because the your your studies with the elderly and we're talking 90 year olds is just more proof that yeah you can maintain a healthy brain or there's there's things you can do at different stages potentially which i find very exciting um so just to recap there too then um you mentioned gray matter and white matter 
because um, I guess a lot of people would understand they've heard of those terms if they've watched Grey's Anatomy or you know some medical program and they've talked about things and then the importance of that stuff called myelin which is like the insulation on a wire and so we need that to be well insulated so that the neurons can fire and signals can pass properly to their to through the regions of the brains right so um Myelin, it's like an isolator, and in our brain, um, or in all like um, mammalian brain, um, the the electrical signals will travel faster if there's so-called saltatory uh, transduction. So instead of going through the entire cell membrane, um, this isolation, um, like a fatty wraps around our um, axons of our neurons, they help the signal jump, which makes it travel much faster. And it's not only about speed, but it's also about timing and synchronization. So our brains are very finely tuned into how, you know, different types of signals converge in some brain region, of course, depending on our attention state and so on, to produce certain type of output and action that it's relevant for the time um, of the and the situation, right? Because, of course... Um, certain inputs will have different meaning if we are in a danger, dangerous, stressed uh, situation and different when we're just like relaxing, brainstorming. Um, so our brain is very finely tuned. So any kind of disruption to this very delicate network can cause some cognitive impairments. And the, and the classic uh, condition might be something like multiple sclerosis. Right. So this is multiple sclerosis um, is related to um, some changes in the myelin, some of them reversible, some of them not reversible. Um, and it exactly it causes those pathways, those highways in our brain not to be that reliable. Mm-hmm. OK, so then you um, you were mentioning that yeah, with the, with the brain development, but then um now we're going to look more into movement because that's really the key aspect here because uh, people listening to this would, would know about uh, when I've spoken to people about nutrition or psychology, psychiatry and chemicals, but we're going to use the sensation of movement now to actually feed our neurons. And um, just for any, my interest was also, Pete, in this was to do with a concept of neural plasticity. And I remember reading um, The Brain That Changes Itself. Uh, I've forgotten the, the neuroscientist who wrote that, but basically using movement to actually grow new neurons or grow better connections. And that's where I love this idea that movement helps to feed your brain and how important it is that we need to do movement to feed our, our neurons. Mm-hmm. So the, the research that I'm doing, it's maybe slightly different from, you know, this, in a way, neuroplasticity related maybe to learning certain type of motion. Uh, in a way, um, what, what we study in, in my laboratory is we try to understand how this general aerobic fitness, so it's not maybe particular motor motion or execution or sensation, but it's more the aerobic fitness. So you know, the, the ability of the heart and and lungs to carry oxygen um, that basically causes a lot of physiological changes in, in our body and the brain. And a lot of in a lot of neuroscience we treat brain as some kind of different organ than all 
of our body mm. or in a way sometimes the superior or you know segregated part of our body but in our line of research we basically try to understand how the entire physiology affects also the brain because you know in our brain we have all kind of receptors all kind of mechanisms um so for example we do have a lot of insulin receptors and other metabolic receptors it's not fully understood how it works why do we have those receptors in brain structures such as hippocampus which is mainly involved in memory formation i'm a bit simplifying here but mm -hmm. you know we have all those physiological links between the body and the brain and another interesting aspect that i was find is you know, the condition of our blood vessels. Of course, if we do a lot of exercise, our arteries get more elastic and they are healthier. But we should not forget that the same arteries deliver brain to our brain. And um, we know that hypertension causes damage in different organs, such as kidneys, liver. And that's exactly the same what basically happens to our brain. Um, so these are just two examples of how our brain is just one of the organs in our body. So that's so exciting to see if we get more fit with exercise, you know, how we get maybe benefits at the level of the brain and cognition. Mm, that's, yeah. Uh, so it, I think that is a problem sometimes in science and medicine where we uh, it's trying to make things too isolated versus understanding yeah a human being is a whole and everything's communicating with all the other systems and so it sounds like with your research you are you're studying how your other physiology markers are also influencing the health of of the brain yeah but it also doesn't make this research easy because as you can imagine if we study people who exercise it's really hard to say where those people who are very fit and exercising are they more motivated? Did they have some benefit, at least personality benefits right away? Or is it like because they ended up exercising, are they more motivated also to perform even in cognitive tasks? So studying humans is always complicated. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, mixing chemical reaction. There are always so many other factors. You know, even their social economic status can influence this. Um, because sometimes we have to be lucky to have, you know, even the time to exercise. So, mm, yeah. so there's a lot of factors there, but, um, yeah, we try to, you know, design studies in a way that we can tease apart some of those factors. So coming back to Olga, what, what are some of the main points that your research with her particularly got you excited or was very revealing? So I think the most um, surprising part about studying her brain was that she really had very high white matter integrity in her prefrontal part of her brain. So to have some reference, we also compared her to the data we had from, I think, 58 older women who are between the age of 60 and 80. So on average, they were 20 years younger than Olga. Because we had to have some reference point always in research. However, I could not get hold on any sample of older, healthy older females of Olga's age. Um, it's either that I just couldn't ask other scientists to share the data with me, but honestly, it's also not so much data out there that I could find. 
And as you know, sharing biological data is not that easy uh, because we have a lot of ethical permissions. So all I had is this data of healthy but rather low active older females. And knowing the trajectory of the decline, they should have had white matter integrity much higher than Olga because we know that the decline of white matter really starts accelerating after a person turns 60 or 70. So she was 93 when we studied her. Um, but surprisingly, her white matter integrity in, in the more frontal part of her brain was better than all the other females. And that was surprising. And of course, we thought, oh, maybe it's some image artifact, maybe something went wrong. But we really studied it carefully. And we looked also in some other brain region when she had those typical age-related changes. And the images correctly showed us that she would have then like more degeneration in those parts. I'm kind of simplifying it a mm -hmm. bit, but um, I think it's good this way. Um, yeah, so this was surprising. And that's what we think that this effect in her brain could not be just an effect of slowdown or successful aging, lack of big diseases. We know she was not hypertensive, which could be a big plus. But we also believe it was partly an effect of taking up exercise and staying very active uh, throughout her whole, whole later life mm -hmm. and late adulthood. So she had the changes of what she mentioned as we age, our, our brain volume, so the brain shrinks. So she, um, so she showed... Brain was not that shrunk. Um, like visually, when we first look at this, her brain looks really good. When we compared her brain to other females, um, those younger females, she had she had some atrophy, so brain shrinkage, but it was not as dramatic as we could expect. Mm. So I'd say her brain volume was also quite well preserved. Yeah. So that would. That, it, it, so what is it that actually shrinks in that case? Is it that we don't? It, it's just that the I don't know the volume of the of the cells goes down. Yeah, is it? It's not much so from what we know in um healthy aging is that of course some neurons and some glial cells may die but it's not this like a massive death of the brain and healthy aging it's more that what shrinks is the um, the so-called neuropile so you know each cell it's not in isolation it's surrounded by many other cells and to connect they form those like little buds where the synapses are located, called dendritic spines. So what has been observed also in aged animals and some post-mortem humans, because as you know, we can't take life samples from healthy people, is that often they just had, you know, less of those connections. So if you connect, if you imagine those like large, large numbers of connections, and if they get reduced, that, that's where we could see the reduction of um, brain volume. Okay. It may also be some reductions or changes in um, brain vasculature, so the blood vessels. Yeah, I think it's a combination of multiple factors. But as far as we know, it's not like a massive cell death. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine people thinking, "Oh my goodness, as I'm getting old, my brain's shrinking." But my, <laughs> like, what's what can I do to stop that? Um, well, in concussions, there may be. So that's why. Um, we are very uh, careful when we select our participants to make sure that they didn't do like high impact sports because this gives a very different image 
on the aging brain. And this is also a hot topic in studying the brain. So it's good to be active, but if you do brain uh, sports that may give you concussions, you may somehow lose the benefit of exercise. So it's as one time I talked to one concussion scientist and he said, well, our brains are not woodpecker brains. They are not made for impact. Mm. So even woodpecker brain apparently has some mechanisms there to actually that the head shakes, but the brain is not that shaken. Okay. So this is just maybe something to keep in mind that sports are good, but not those that give us concussion. Yeah, the contact sports. I, I've never even thought about how did, what is the physiology of an animal, you know, like a, a con like a woodpecker, how it doesn't actually give itself multiple concussions when it's pecking away. I, ne- I never I, even I, thought of that. I'm an expert, but I heard that <laughs> they have some adjustments in their head and maybe the neck that actually prevents the brain to be shaken as much. So mm. okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned also then uh, your surprising results of the white matter in the prefrontal cortex. Could you maybe explain to listeners what 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 is the function of the prefrontal cortex of the brain? Oh, so so the changes were actually in the prefrontal white matter. Okay. So in the connections that are related to the prefrontal cortex. So um, prefrontal cortex is evolutionary, um, like the one of the youngest parts of the brain. So. And it's responsible mainly for a higher level cognition, higher level thinking. So also aspects such as cognitive control, executive functions, which means that let's say we have a goal in mind and we can structure our behavior, we can control our impulses um, and basically execute it. So anything that that makes humans in a way... Um, humans. You know, be, be able to to be kind of goal-oriented and persistent and also adapt to external situations okay Although I, don't do, I don't want to compare us to animals because i still think animals are very smart <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, i can think of uh, people as they age and they try to do puzzles like crossword puzzles or sudoku to you know to improve that ability to think and and this is always where i hear about the link between movements and that that basis of that you could be moving your body which is what you mentioned earlier with the rock climbers but that you actually could be performing very well at a cognitive thinking level too and that there's a benefit between the two so uh, i may have some bias because i study how, mainly how physical activity affects the brain and of course there's also a big field of research trying to make people train cognitive tasks but i'm personally a bit skeptical Um, because a lot of cognitive training that is now available to people via different commercial games too, there's still restricted evidence when it comes to transfer. So we can train some, you know, working memory or memory games on a particular game, but it doesn't mean that it will give us any benefit in a real-life situation. So maybe some type of strategy training may be better. But still, we only practice this um, cognitive aspect. And why I believe, in a way, more in exercise, because exercise boosts our body and the brain in a similar way. So it's not just like one restricted effect, but we get, you know, we get pheromones, um, um, we get like endorphin uh, release, we get um, better brain perfusion, 
better or upregulation of neurotrophic factors that are protective and pro-neuroplasticity in our brain. So there are those multiple factors that multiple benefits, not only physiological, but also more neuronal that, that we benefit. And yeah, so it just makes our whole mm. brain think work better. And that's why I think it's such a good way to boost your performance. Yeah, so I like that idea that the problem of, say, if you think, oh, no, I'm only going to do a, a, you know, one of these brain training games or a puzzle, but the problem is that you're not training your other physiology, like your heart or your skeletal muscles. Or any, or, but when you're doing exercise, you're getting a full body effect. So you're training your brain and you're training all these systems which have to talk together. So I can see how that's, right. you're going to get a big, bigger bang for your buck. But I would not want to, you know, um, kind of undermine the importance of being cognitively active. Mm -hmm. But I would say learning a new skill may be more um, productive than just solving Sudoku all the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, because Sudoku or crosswords, they, they in a way capitalize on our just knowledge. And in a way, they do not always challenge us, right? We are not under time pressure. We are not solving some new problem using very new skills. So that's why what's also our recent research revealed that dance, for example, can stimulate our brain in a special way because it's a mixed cognitive um, exercise and social stimulation. So I would say those immersive activities um, may have a special benefit uh, for our brain, especially mm. in aging. Yeah, and I would say the the social element is potentially undermined a lot of the time because when you're doing a sport, you're with a lot of other like-minded people potentially. Uh, and especially as we age and loneliness is a big issue that it's actually so healthy just to be amongst other people and that has a, a, a benefit on your brain. So, um, Yeah, I think sports are also extremely supportive because I think – um, well, everybody who does some kind of activity, they know how, how in a way moving it is when you see people support each other to push themselves. So two days ago, I completed a half marathon and it was really, it's always a special, I think I do it for this type of feeling when you run on the last two miles and you can see everybody's in pain for whatever reasons. I know it's still not a full marathon, but it still hurts. <laughs> And, and, you know, people just pushing each other, although everybody has a pain, it's, it's very motivating. And it's just my personal, um, you know, experience from running is people run for various reasons and everybody has some kind of obstacle that they overcome. And I think it's also part of um, those effects, although it's not exactly supported by our research, but I think it's uh, something we should not, you know, forget the social aspect, the motivational aspect um, of exercise. And um, I'd be interested in your research or if you in the field that you're within, are there any differences in the types of activities? So someone who's weight training in, in a gym versus someone who is swimming versus someone who's long distance walking or something um, from a from a benefit for exercise in your brain so i think there are certain levels that we can talk about so um 
we we were, I think, one of the first uh, groups to use objective measures of physical activity. So we used accelerometers. It's a scientifically validated, you know, Fitbit or any kind of commercial tool. Why they are validated? So they, they don't look that fancy. They, they kind of just like weird red objects that people wear on their hip. But they have been validated with different uh, age groups and different populations to really know how they measure certain levels of, you know, energy expenditure and exercise. So we use those devices and related them to brain health. So we, for example, found that even sitting class is already beneficial for our brain, especially for the white matter. So, you know, it depends on what people do and how much they can do. Of course, there'll be always people who have certain restrictions when it comes to physical activity, um, although people always can find, um, you know, excuses and you'd be surprised to know how many people run, although they have very serious health excuses. So you know, it's always a different thing. But anyways, we found that people who sit less, for example, have greater integrity of the white matter near the hippocampus, so structures related to memory formation. But also in the last study, we observed that people who sit less um, like on everyday life, because we measure their behavior over seven days, they, for example, also had slower decline in the white matter over six months. So it's not only, you know, correlation, but it's also how the brain behaves over time. So in a way, the first tip I could give to people is to try to avoid uninterrupted long periods of sitting. And so that's an Try to get up from time to time, mm. even just go around the office, go to the bathroom, get some water, like really try not to sit two hours without much motion. Try to get your, you know, um, change your blood pressure by just standing up, maybe making a squat or something. Um, and then the next level is, you know, doing those light physical activities. And we also observe that this benefits our brain. But I would say that especially the higher intensity exercise, which causes our uh, cardiorespiratory fitness or oxygen consumption to increase, this is like a different level. It's especially beneficial for the brain. And here, honestly, I'm, I don't have a clear answer. There are studies from other groups when they tested resistance training and they also got very promising results. But um, there was a study, I think, in the last year too, when they, for example, showed that resistance training three days per week uh, was beneficial, but not two days per week. So we are still trying to know more about what's the dosage, what's the duration and intensity. And I would still say that, you know, exercising too hard can be devastating for our body, right? So trying to really push ultra marathons and everything till the limits, this may not benefit our body. I mean, all people who are extreme athletes, they know that there is some limit and that the injuries come. But within the kind of healthy limit, we know that, you know, interval training, um, recent research showed that Older adults are capable of uh, interval tra training, that it's not that they can't do it, but they definitely should consult a doctor, especially if they have some heart issues. But all of this can benefit us. So especially, you know, if someone cannot run, then 
brisk walking can already help to increase the aerobic capacity. Of course, some types of resistant training too. So I think the main message here is that I think every exercise and activity is good as long as it's safe for us and we enjoy it and we keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's probably the biggest point. I always say that to people, do something you enjoy. So don't just do it because, yeah, you, you'll get some benefits. Uh, but if you enjoy what you're doing, that's just like putting more uh, like the cherry on the cake because that enjoyment factor itself has a massive impact for the benefit that you're going to reap from that too. And I mean, we only maintain activities that are enjoyable to us. And that's why in this um, recent study that we published, we had not only brisk walking, which was a very well-controlled activity in a gym. They were walking around in circles just to increase their aerobic fitness. But then we also had a group who were dancing. They were doing uh, contra dance and English dance. Uh, I don't mistake the names. Um, and this is another way, you know, to use an activity that's, that's in a way well-known. I mean, every child understand, understands what's dance about. That's kind of just more fun. Because, you know, just trying to run on a treadmill, like I never run on a treadmill, I just get too bored. Um, it's so much more fun to exercise sometimes without noticing you exercise, just because you're dancing and following moves and interacting with uh, w with other dancing people. So, so after the study was published, a lot of people, you know, ask what type of dance you think is the best. And honestly... For our experiment, because we had a large group of people, it was not so much that we think that uh, English country dance is the most efficient. It's simply that in older samples, we usually have more women than men. Women tend to be a bit more open-minded and more eager to, um, you know, involved in research studies. Women also tend to still statistically live longer by seven years, so they maybe tend to be healthier. So we often have like up to 70% of our samples female. So of course, if we pair them in ballroom dances, there will be some couples that will be only two women and you don't know how they will enjoy it. So mm. we chose for this intervention, you know, type of dance that they can alternate partners, that it's made as uniform for everybody as possible. And, and again, I would not say this is the only type of dance that can benefit people. I think whatever, ball, ballroom dance, salsa, I don't know, modern dance, mm -hmm. um, tai chi. I mean, whatever that engages people and stimulates them in this, you know, social, cognitive and exercise way. Mm. And that enjoyment factor, again, it just highlights it that, yes, movement's healthy. But if you can find movement that is enjoyable, don't worry that you have to find like that particular type of dance. Do you enjoy dan that dance? Yes. Brilliant. You're moving, you're enjoying. You're going to get right, the benefit. What's special about dance is that we tend to learn more aspects of it. So there's an aspect of learning and memory and, you know, control, mm. timing, being faster. So because you have to be in sync with the music and other people dancing. So, you know, there are other also activities that are not dance that may require this. Of course, one of them could be climbing, I believe. And of course, we will be testing this because scientifically we want to know there may be still that some of those activities for some reason are more effective than the others. Um, but at that time, knowing that there's a lot of research, you know, doing resistant training, or maybe there's not a lot, it's emerging research doing either aerobic or resistance, comparing them all. 
with the dancing. Um, so at the moment, we know that those ways to boost your brain at any age actually are opt- uh, are promising, but we will definitely keep studying it to better understand the dosage, the frequency, the intensity. Mm. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway here is right now, no one knows that how many times a week or how long for you should be doing x activity to get the change in your brain potentially so but as long as you're moving at the end of the day which is comes back to that sitting example that you did because yeah. yeah i think that's a, that's a really good one because i know of some uh, like a bit of a slang thing of the 23 and a half hour disease saying that you'll you'll be sedentary for 23 and a half hours of your 24 hour day but you'll maybe exercise intensely for half an hour and so that half an hour doesn't actually mitigate the problems of being sedentary for 23 and a half other hours. Exactly. So there, there's a term for it, like a um, fit couch potato, mm-hmm. uh, which means that, you know, we go to work by car, we sit there, then we come, but then we go for one hour per day to a gym and, and really exercise. So there, there is some discussion in the field of this health neuroscience and aging that just going for one hour to a gym may give us this cardiovascular and you know muscle benefit, but it may still not protect us from some other physiological um, effects of the sedentary lifestyle. So we may still be fit, but we may still suffer from some disadvantages of prolonged sitting. Because we know that there has been research not on the brain, but on physiological responses to being sedentary. So they would put young, healthy people into like a hospital bed and keep them there for hours or few days. And there were different, you know, metabolic responses in a way like uh, physiological alarm responses that were happening. Um, So we know that even two hours of prolonged sitting, uninterrupted sitting, does affect our metabolism. in this kind of, to simplify it, you know, a bit more pro-diabetic, pro-metabolic syndrome way. So we don't fully understand this, but maybe it is a reason for some people, you know, being active and fit, but they still have some health issues at some point. So I think it's really important to think how we live our days if we can. And, you know, sometimes don't take this elevator, take those stairs walk a bit, park further away, because now we have so many um, improvements in our life comfort that sometimes may be counteractive. Mm. I'm sometimes skeptical sometimes when I observe so many people just drive to the gym to exercise for one hour. I'm like, why don't you jog there? Why don't you bike there? Um, Well, but that's kind of how the world is constructed now. Yeah, that's for sure. And it is that case of, uh, I think, in the modern world, creature comforts. We we live in a lot of them, and, and it makes us lazy um, in a way. It changes our habits and our routines. And um, so I've I've always thought my personal concept is creating like a fidget desk. So you have a workstation, but I believe humans are designed to fidget. It's not a we're not meant to be these completely still beings because we're a vascular system. We're a, a moving system. It's dynamic, and so. N- you don't, uh, you know, your blood's moving through you all the time, but also your body actually wants to move. It wants to explore. You need, you know, you need the tactile the sensations from not only your fingers, your feet and anything. Your body actually wants to sense where it is in the world. So um, I like the idea too that people who might think, oh, I'm too, 
I'm too overweight or I'm unfit, so I can't go to a gym. But even like you said, if you're just moving around your household, that's healthy for you, better than just sitting on the couch watching TV. So, yeah, definitely like experiencing things um, is very stimulating. And that's why this was one of the parts of the discussion in the paper about Olga Kotelko when, you know, we speculated that, well, one thing is that she was exercising that could um, physiologically kind of benefit her brain. But another aspect is that because she was active and we know that she also did a lot of volunteering, she was almost never like maybe maximum one hour per day, she would like sit, relax in front of TV or read something. But she was extremely engaged. She would, you know, volunteer, make apparently dumplings. She had also Eastern European origin. So I read that she was, you know, making dumplings for the community and so on. Plus also she started traveling to all of those competitions. So it's in a way vicious circle because she was active, which maybe help her brain, but on the other hand, also experiencing the world was definitely something that not only motivated her, but also stimulated her. And that's why I think, um, you know, there's a lot of our kind of everyday life that we, we may think that we are stimulated because we read some information on our phone, we get all the social media information, but does it really challenge us? Does it you know, just reading information and laughing and stuff. It doesn't mean we are actually making mental effort to connect information, to explore something, to go somewhere else. So I'm a bit, you know, um, in a way skeptical that the more information and the more kind of utilities like, you know, cars and everything comes to us that we really just consume it um, instead of creating more things. But it's a very general discussion. It's... Uh, yeah. No, that goes... Yeah, no. I was thinking about how, um, how in a way we get comfortable, but then we just kind of, you know, consume and we don't challenge ourselves always. Yeah, it's a, I guess you know uh, we won't go into that discussion too deep, but it's it's a bit like <laughs> yeah. social media, and so that concept where you think, oh no, I'm I'm very social on social media, but that social activity is very different. And if you were one to one with someone in a room or in a party, that's that social element's very different to just engaging on a screen or an app on your phone and uh, how that activity actually helps you and your physiology. So, yeah, I can, I can get your point there. That's why exercise, like in real life, can be a good way to get out of there, you know? Yeah, for sure. Go for a workout with friends, go for a run, whatever, as we said, whatever mm. makes people move. Yeah. yeah, and like your case, you're rock climbing, you're getting outside, you're getting vitamin D because you're exposing yourself to the sunshine. You could get into biohacking concepts that you're earthing because you touch the ground with bare skin and you're getting electrons from the world. You know, there's so many other yeah. elements. Yeah, I mean, definitely, um, you know, this is just an example, but um, I also believe that those type of activities that many people may think they're not achievable, like climbing. I mean, there are so many very safe ways to climb, even for, let's say, older people. And this is a great resistance training with only weight of your own body. Um, and that's why it, I, I put it here as an example, like in addition to dancing that we researched is that it's a very multi-sensory experience and definitely there is something to it. And there's a research, you know, on 
um, that getting outdoor, getting outside makes people more creative or more relaxed. I mean, it's in a way obvious, but I think it's good to know that there's some research supporting it, that contact with nature. And, you know, that's why I think some people, when we grow adult, we are more often upset because we are not supposed to get out there and play in sand, but mm. it's so good. I, I know. <laughs> so, um yeah, so I think a lot of our conversation goes into this a broader, you know, discussion on on how we live now life as especially adults because I think kids are much better off they can play. Yeah. And I yeah. think I think and that she- does come back to the concept of adults. I love that where you're tying it in now because again that's what I believe is that I I feel adults are so scared to be kids. And there's not a problem to go outside and be playful, you know, you don't have to be this um quarantine sterile person because you're an adult now go out and you know move your body uh, make you know, you know go laugh and say stuff outside so yeah and for uh i also wanted to mention this is not um uh, my own research but from colleagues from our previous group which shows that similar correlations or effects of exercise on the brain are also observed in children that it's not only the older brain, but it's also, you know, middle adulthood and children's brain that kids who are more fit, they tend to have, let's say, bigger, larger hippocampus and, for example, better spatial working memory. So this is not only about brain aging, but it's also about the development. So, you know, I think looking back at uh, when I was at school, Sometimes those quiet um, kids were in a way privileged by uh, teachers, not only the kids that just wanted to go out, go out there and play all the time. But I think now we start appreciating that really this aerobic fitness and physical activity is really good for children. Um, and I know that there are a lot of you know ways to accommodate this need for children to get active. And there's yet like another aspect that throughout our life, we build so-called, you know, cognitive or brain reserves. So it's easy to imagine that if your brain has been healthy for the whole life and then you start aging, even if you have some more serious problems, you have more, you know, to lose from. Mm. And this is this called like brain reserve. So it's good to keep building it up throughout the whole life. Of course, yes, sometimes we missed out on this. And I still believe it's not too late to start building it up later in life. But I think especially for your readers and listeners who, you know, who have children, it's really important not to overlook that this exercise is also extremely good for, you know, um, kids at school and their performance. And there have been also studies that show that students who engage in more sports in the college level, they have in a way better kind of career outcomes a few years after college. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, maybe it's the way we organize our time that those people may be extremely competitive, organized, ambitious. They do not give up, you know, when they, let's say, have to go and do another training. But there's just multiple aspects, I think, of our life and brain health that are touched by physical activity and fitness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, that nutrition. And so that's why I like thinking of movement as like nutrition it's a foundation for 
optimal human physiology it feeds you and uh, you and from the day you're born and you're going through your motor developmental patterns until the day you die you know you movement is a key element throughout our lifespan right yeah so i love that and um it fits you with oxygen <laughs> <laughs> So are there any other particular points um, uh, that you'd like to maybe mention in your research? You've uh, you've given us some good insight into your latest research. Um, are there any particular points maybe I, I haven't asked you that you'd love to air? Because I know you, you again, I found you through the reference with uh, the article in the media publications. And I know sometimes media doesn't allow you to express everything that you might have wanted to say. Are there any points that you feel have been missed? Um. I'm not sure now, okay. but I would like to thank of all our, especially study participants who, you know, who share their brains with us and help us study uh, those relationships. And I'm now also studying a larger sample of runners. And all I must say, they are amazing. They actually made me start running again. Um some of them made a deal with me that if I run this half marathon, they will participate in my study. So as you see, I'm working hard. <laughs> and honestly, this is a great motivation. It's like, why not? Um, yeah, I must say a lot of uh, my own study participants are a great inspiration to me um, of how it is never too late to start and how to push through different ups and downs. As they say, some of them say, you know, like you just keep running through it. Mm. Uh, you have a bad day, you have a good day, and you just keep running. Well, not only running, but moving through. So, yeah. like, besides the neuroscience part of this research and the physiological tests we do, it's just extremely motivating to be around, um, you know, people who are usually 60 plus, um, who are so motivated and so you know, active. And of course, if they are active physically, um, they are usually extremely happy mm -hmm. <laughs> in other aspects. So I'm, I'm just very grateful to do this work uh, here in, at Colorado State University. It's it's such a motivation. Mm. So Even I'm, if I'm not in a lot of pain after that. <laughs> I have to tell them. <laughs> well, you've already inspired me to, I know if I need a, the problem is I do a lot of uh, work online. So uh Unfortunately, I'm in the situation where, yeah, I need to build a better, better fidget workstation myself, but also just actually get out more, you know, and I think that's the biggest biohack here, health improvement that people can do is just go find activities and build that into a routine. As you mentioned, who knows, is it because you're moving that your brain's improving or is it because of these other elements that people who move a lot actually have to have routine to move a lot because they need to allocate time? Um, but yeah, that's a, it's another good trait to have. So. Um, so uh, if anyone else is interested I'm going to link to a lot of these references in the show notes on the episode but are there any other uh, references online that you would direct people um, when it comes to, that you think would be good inspiration to motivate people with movement and uh, brain health uh, I, I don't know if you say your university has any links to any other resources Ah, it's hard to tell. I usually just follow different newspapers. Okay. <laughs> um, nothing that comes to my mind is like a constant source. Uh, I just keep reading. Um, I don't know. Okay. Different sources. 
Well, my lab website, we try to keep it up to date if anybody's interested to see what we are studying right now. Um, and I don't know of any like brain related, um, you know, platform that's that that really focuses on this besides academic journals i know it's bad <laughs> well that's where i'm trying to take academic studies and trying to pull it into real life that's actionable whilst we're living right yeah well, so. well um i just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the show today um i found it very inspirational and i'm sure a lot of people have listened to this are probably wanting to get up and start moving if they're not already moving whilst listening to it, to the episode, which I hope they're doing too. But I just want to say thank you again for coming on and sharing your information that you've learned from all the research that you've done. Well, thank you so much. And if this research will make anybody become more active, this would make us very happy. Yeah, it definitely will. <laughs> okay. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.